If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. In our show today, we are going to talk with Karen Feste about conflict resolution. Super excited to bring this conversation to you. Let me first just remind you that next month, we have our Everything You Wanted to Know About Strategic Planning webinar. The registration is open for it. So if your organization is thinking, even just thinking about doing some sort of a strategic planning process in 2022, this is the webinar that you want to register for. So again, go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Make sure you register for that webinar. Also want to let you know that our book club, which we will be launching in the spring, early spring of 2022, registration is open for that as well. Now let me share with you a little bit about Karen Feste and our topic today. You know, disagreement, it's inevitable in every area of our lives, not just our work life, not just our civic life, even in our personal life. Whether you're talking about, are we going to wear masks or are we not going to wear masks? Are we, are we going to pursue this strategy or some other strategy? Or even sometimes the color of the carpet, although um, th- that might be where you're starting to spiral downhill a little bit if you really want to argue over the color of the carpet. But sometimes even the color of the carpet, we just have disagreement. And so how we deal with that disagreement is so critical for us to have functioning organizations and for us to have lives that we actually want to live. Now, there are many reasons why I wanted to make sure that we had Karen Feste on the podcast today. But let me tell you the top one. So Lexi Linger, who has hosted a couple episodes of the podcast, and I often mention she's my colleague here at Successful Nonprofits, she has a graduate degree in conflict resolution. And Karen was Lexi's grad school professor. And so when we when we started to brainstorm some topics and we said, oh, let's talk about conflict resolution, Lexi's like, I've got the person. I'm like, who? And she tells me about Karen. I'm like, oh, yeah, we 100% 
have to have Karen on the podcast. Now, she is a professor at the University of Denver and is actually not only directs, but has founded the Graduate Program in Conflict Resolution. And she has been running that program for over two decades, I think probably actually close to 25 years at this point. And she specializes in helping people and organizations move beyond that point where you're just intractable and you just can't make any progress or any compromise. Karen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. As I was prepping for our show today, I read a mantra that you have when it comes to conflict resolution, and I'm hoping you're going to both share it and tell us some more about it. The mantra, I'll state it and then I'll repeat it, and I will ask everyone to memorize it. The world is not going to survive the 21st century without people who learn skills in conflict resolution, practice them, and teach them to others. Conflict escalation is very easy. Any four-year-old can do it. It's thoughtless. It's sitting in the sandbox, throwing sand. It's not leaning back and using the human potential to say, let's get the big picture and imagine how we can move ahead with mutual gains. So I'm going to repeat the mantra once more. The world will not survive the 21st century without people who learn conflict resolution skills, who practice them diligently, and teach them to others. Remember, it's easy to escalate conflict. It's thoughtless. It takes creative abilities that we have in our human potential to resolve conflicts peacefully and move ahead. And I think you are so right. Sometimes the easy and almost the gratifying thing is to escalate conflict because it's almost gratifying at first. We're like, oh my gosh, yeah, you say that. Well, let me tell you what I'm going to do. Well, you know, especially in our society, we're individualistically oriented. We're not a collective society. And we have this notion that competition is the most important value. And winning is really essential in competition. So winning means I beat you, you know, I'm at the top of the mountain and you are not. It's a very odd kind of perspective if you imagine it. And it's very adversarial. It doesn't really foster like, well, you know, if we spent more of our time imagining how our differences can be meshed in certain ways, which requires a lot of thought. It's not that part of the brain that's very well developed, by the way. You know, I really do believe the world would be at a, be a better place. And I just also have to say, you know, if you've, if you've climbed a mountain, the top of the mountain is usually a good little bit of space. More than one person can be at or really close to the top of the mountain. It's not like one person has to be at the top and the other down at the base looking up. Yeah, but the hierarchy in our organization, which again, can expect to the competitive spirit, which, oh, that's so wonderful. No, it, it's not always wonderful. In other words, you want to figure out how can I advance human progress using the skills of competition and using the skills of collaboration simultaneously or knowing when one fits and when the other doesn't fit. We don't stop to think. So let's talk about that. When does one fit? You mean, when do you get that kind of collaborative notion coming in? Yeah. And, and when is that the right thing? Yeah. 
it's never natural. <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, we have this perspective on human nature that says the default is competition, which then it will never fit only if things are so bad or you're in stalemate or the world could fall apart tomorrow, that's when people feel desperate. <laughs> desperate people are often more willing to look at this. But just imagine if before a war began, people said, well, you know, we're going to be on a disastrous course here. So let's imagine that course has already passed. And now we are impending future crisis, the end of the universe. What should we do? We need to think those thoughts before we engage in the violence, but we're not doing that. We're saying, let's do the competitive sense. Let's test it out first. And only, you know, if it's really bad, then will we move in this direction? You know, it, it needs to be reversed, but because people are so confident, oh, don't worry, I'll be the king of the hill. I'm not worried. This overconfidence, which we know often goes, often goes south. And so what are some of those creative ways that we can de-escalate when, when we're working with people who maybe are overconfident and pretty, pretty clear that they're going to be at the top and no one is going to be there with them? Yeah, well, the problem is we all suffer from that. And that's where we have to begin. So we ourselves very personally have to say, hey, how do I get control, get grounded, calm down, slow it down? That's kind of step one. So I often say to people, you've got to learn about meditating. Oh, no, that's not serious stuff. No, it does something to your brain. If you can slow down that ego emphasis process, because by slowing it down, you can still retain your confidence, but it's a worldly confidence, not an individualistic confidence. That's really the big step one. Um, we now see that that kind of uh, technique is being proposed in a lot of areas. In health, it's used in military training these days. Calm down. And that means to move the ego in the background and move your highest con higher consciousness forward. I think I can't emphasize that enough. And there's a tremendous resistance to taking that seriously. But it is a serious process because it really is um, physiological. Before it is psychological, the brain waves, slowing the brain waves, that's step one. And then step two is where you can learn different techniques about how to think about an adversary. You know, what do they want? What do you want? And then kind of strategize about various solutions, but you can't do that as long as you're in a non-calm competitive state. So I can't emphasize this enough that, that slowing down the brain waves is really the first step, but it's not the last step. It, it's the beginning. I think I know in my own life, sometimes thinking I should slow this down and I should calm down is easier said than done. <laughs> what are some of the most effective ways to do that? Okay, you know, it's good that you raise that, Dolph, because, you know, a lot of the training and conflict resolution, people say, oh, this book is so easy, it's a no-brainer, I can do it. And I say, okay, try. Oh, this is really difficult. It is more difficult than you imagine because the default in our brain technology is so, so strong. It takes something to really overcome it. 
Uh, so you ask, how do we go through the calming? Well, you know, there's the natural breathing exercises. Now, why deep breathing? Because it changes the CO constitution in your system. If I asked you to take 50 deep breaths, holding each one for 10 seconds before exhaling, you're going to feel pretty lightheaded. In fact, you're going to think, I don't need that glass of wine later today. I don't need any uppers because I am in this different state. It's unbelievably so. And I encourage everybody to try this. It's, it, you know, the beginning part is breathe in for five seconds, hold it for five seconds, and exhale for five seconds and keep repeating it and keep counting because then you're focused on the breathing and you're focused on the counting. And that redirects your mind. You'll be surprising how well it works. There's plenty of research out there which has used these breathing, just breathing exercises to uh, change uh, stress factors. Now, why do you want to reduce stress? Because then you're enlarging your brain. And by enlarging your brain, you're open to a bigger picture. Your mind actually expands. You get better ideas, um, more um, creative ideas that you can't get when you're in that very dramatic, high stress kind of setting. And even if you only do it, say, starting out two minutes a day, just starting out two minutes. When you get up in the morning, then I like to do it in the afternoon when batteries are low, you need a little, you know, <laughs> a little rejuvenation. Um, and I will go for maybe 10 minutes. You know, the ultimate might be 20 minutes. Other people say 30 minutes an hour. No one has that much time, but anybody can do two minutes. You can even do it while you're driving, practicing your breathing while you're driving. Uh, you can't do it when you're actually engaged with someone else, you know, in, in a conversation or, you know, doing email. You've got to be just by yourself where you can focus on the breathing. So I strongly recommend the two-minute test, trying it several times a day, and particular trying it before you're going into a situation where you're going to feel stressed. The idea is reduce that because then you, in a more relaxed state, will be able to respond differently, and it will be to everyone's benefit, not just your own. Can I share with you one of the things that works really well for me? Breathing works, and there's another one that works really well. That's vigorous. When I say vigorous, I mean really almost strenuous physical activity. So if I'm not in a good place and I go and train, or I go even for a three-mile run or a four-mile run, as long as I actually am pushing myself. So I'm not like, oh, you know, I'm happy with an 11-minute mile. You know, I'm like, okay, I want a, I want an eight-minute mile or an eight-and-a-half-minute mile. Um, by the time I'm done, just I'm in a whole, my head is in a whole different space because my, my body is worn out. And the energy that I had that was revolving around this thing that was frankly was making me swirl downward. Right is not there anymore. That energy I spent, like I spent it doing something else. Well, it's brain work because your brain has gotten refocused to just force you to do this physical exercise. So anything that can take the brain out of its, you know, high stress, tight framework will be beneficial. Absolutely. No, I feel the same thing. If I don't get that on an exercise, exercise on a daily basis, you don't want to talk to me. So, so it sounds like step one is 
get calm and break the pattern. And and now step two, what's what's that second step? Well, step two is connected with this, you know, de, de-stressing uh, procedure. And that is you have to be able to tell yourself everything works out for the highest good. I want this, A, B, C, D. They want that, A, B, C, D. I can't see right now through the end point, but I feel for certain that the universe will pull it together in ways that will promote the highest good for all of us. It's not just one of these simplistic affirmations. I have a great like, everything works out. No, it's a little more sophisticated than that, saying now that I'm in this calm state and that I know that there's a problem that can be solved that will be for the good of all, I will get insight on this and I will know how to make this work. It's that kind of an orientation. I want to give you a direct example of that just experienced yesterday. I'm a, I'm a professor at a university and we are actually hiring uh, several people in faculty slots. And this is of course highly competitive for people who apply and it's very contentious within the faculty are who are making decisions on this. So we had a couple of final candidates just recently, and they were both so good, and they both brought totally different talents. And our committee, which was composed of 11 people, was split on this. Well, you know, I was thinking before our meeting yesterday, be calm, think about this, let the best solution come forth. And I found myself saying at the meeting, you know, these two candidates, they're different, but they're equal in a number of respects. We can't make the decision. We have to present the two of them to the larger constituency and say, two very good ones, whoever is offered, the other one will be the alternate, but we won't make a preference. We don't want to make a preference. We're putting it out there with that caveat. We had the best kind of dialogue that you can imagine because everybody looked at it, not in a competitive spirit, but what's the right thing that's coming out? What's the right thing? And so we reached that yesterday, you know, about five o'clock in the afternoon. I've already talked to the person who, who got the offer, who, who I think was meant to get it and it feels just right and everybody left this meeting thinking yes perfect solution and that's a conrez solution hmm, i love that i totally totally love that something that i don't always do when i'm walking into meetings that i think might be contentious or might be difficult but when i do it the meeting goes really well is i'll take like five minutes beforehand and I'll kind of center myself and I'll do like some, actually some visualization work where like, you know, I imagine myself being calm and reasonable and compromising. And as odd as that sounds, it for me, that's a real game changer as I walk into that meeting then because I'm in a very different place. I'm like, a, I am in that, okay, what is the highest and best that we can all reach? Yeah, exactly. And in fact, when you are going through that kind of process beforehand, you don't even realize you're sending out different kinds of energies to people who could be your real adversaries in that situation. This is what I noticed when I started learning and practicing this a long time ago. I am shifting my approach, but then everybody else is shifting their approach in relationship to me as well. 
And that's that human energy interconnection, which you can't anticipate. And it's incredible how it works. It's just phenomenal. You know, some people have said it's, you know, these unseen frequencies, we, we know we, you know, it's like a radio frequency in a sense, but somehow it, it connects in the right way if, if you're communicating those kind of vibrations, if we can speak new age for just a second here. We can, we absolutely can. And I've, I've also found it's really helpful if I'm going into a difficult conversation, because, you know, difficult conversations can go in many different directions, but one of them is conflict. And so I've also found, you know, like whether it's if I'm a manager and I've got to have a disciplinary conversation with someone to kind of do that work and walk in with the, okay, you know, kind of trying to have real empathy for the person that I need to have this difficult conversation with while still being honest and frank. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there are some, you know, some specific techniques that are out there as well. And one of them is called getting more. And the guy, it's by a book by Stuart Diamond came out about 10 years ago. And he said, look, we only negotiate to get something. Otherwise, why would you negotiate? And what does that mean? Well, you have to decide, first of all, what what is my purpose in negotiating? Who are they? Who's the other side? And what is it going to take to persuade them? It forces you to think of a conflict through the shoes of the other person, which people are very resistant to do. But these little three points, what, where do I want to end up that I don't have now? That's why I'm going into the negotiation. It's got a purpose. In a difficult conversation, this is something people don't always remember. The reason why you're having it is you need to get to some other place vis-a-vis where you are and where that other person is. You need to get to some other place. You have some kind of preferences. Well, they do too. So what is it going to take to persuade them to come around to your perspective? Now, this doesn't make it just selfish and you know, ego-oriented towards you. It really says, I'm trying to take into account both of these sets of dynamics here. So I don't go in there thinking it will be a difficult conversation. I enter it thinking, you know, we all need to be in this other place. Not just they need to move, but I'm going to be moving too, because if this conflict can disappear, we're all going to be better off. If you go in thinking like that, it doesn't become difficult. It becomes more uh, challenging. And I mean to make a real difference in this. I'm not drawing a line in the sand here. And if you can get there, then you start imagining more, how can we move this? What are the movable places? Do we have to fractionate a problem? Uh, do we have to just divide it into little, you know, little tiny pieces? Um, oftentimes, when you're in a, quote, difficult conversation or something unpleasant, you only see big picture and you forget. Well, there's little tiny pieces. And if I can convey that this is not a big problem, <laughs> this is just a little insignificant issue, that also, I think, helps you know, surround um, the, the, the environment. I was in, in a, um, a friend asked me to be involved in a nursing home dispute recently. And it concerned a patient 
and patient care. And that meant the director of the nursing home was engaged. You know, there was a whole administrative apparatus and then the, 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 the caretakers themselves and then the patient and the patient's family. And I was listening in on their meeting and this was an in-person meeting with about eight people and I'm just sort of there. And I realized, oh, they're going at loggerheads. Well, this is our policy. Yeah, but I'm a patient and this is what I need. And I could see it escalating. And then I said, is the problem that the meal is, is served at five o'clock rather than six o'clock? Well, then people started smiling because mm -hmm. I broke it down. Is it one hour time difference? You know, if that's the issue, let's just talk there and see what we can do. And later the director sent me a personal note saying, you're right. We just, we didn't even think to break it down. And that's a real point. Breaking it down in, into the really, into the really tiny stuff. So you get away from ideology, you get away from entitlement, you get away from my policy, because those are the things which are what? Conflict causing. So you can't tell us that story and not tell us how it ended. Did the resident get their, start getting their meal at six o'clock? Yeah, it, everything worked smoothly. It was like, oh yeah, this is a little piece that we could just probably move around a little bit. It became almost overly simple, yes. Wow, that's awesome. That That's really awesome. Well, I was semi-surprised myself, not knowing, you know, what you're going into and not knowing I was going to see this fractionization because I didn't know that was the issue when we started. I began to see, in fact, I remember there was like the head of nursing sitting right to my left and she started smiling. It's like, oh, maybe we get a breakthrough. But it was the director who said, okay. I, I didn't even look at it through this lens. Well, you see, if you look at it through the fractionation lens, then you can see how you can make a difference. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so breaking down the big intractable conflict mm -hmm. into small little problems that can be solved. What are some other tips that you might have that we can use in resolving these big conflicts that we just engage in? There's another approach and it's called getting to yes okay and it's a very famous study that was first published more than 40 years ago and i'm going to tell you the story about why it got published and what it means it's been translated into about 30 languages by the way it's used widely in business schools and law schools and in um let's see public service training military training uh, diplomatic training and it's a, it's a little booklet by Roger Fisher and Bill Ury, who in the 80s, Roger Fisher was a World War II veteran, and he was very upset about the war. And he was back at Harvard now in law school and thinking, what can I do so we don't have to have these big conflicts? So he eventually wrote his ideas down, and a guy named Bill Ury, who was a graduate student there, asked if, if he could sort of help out a little bit and the two of them then, you know, sort of worked on this and they said, we've just got to have common examples like how to deal with your landlord, uh, not just big war times, but we've got to put in wars too, like Egypt and Israel. How do we deal with the Sinai problem? That was one issue they looked at. And what if you're just shopping and it's a bizarre mentality and you can negotiate price? Or what if you have 
you know, barking dogs in your neighborhood. So let's, what if you got a family dispute with your mother, your father, your siblings, all kinds of conflicts. So they came up with a few principles in getting to yes, which is, first of all, number one, which was the most difficult one, never take anything personally. Never take anything personally. That's tough sometimes, isn't it? That's tough most of the time. And he's got, there's four of them, but the first one is never take anything personally. Well, how do you do that? Because conflict is personal. How do I, you know, it's about me and what I want and I'm upset. Well, as long as you're in that framework, you're never going to get anywhere. So never take it personally. I tell people, pretend there's a glass brick wall in front of you and nobody can get through that. You are absolutely protected. You're absolutely protected from any verbal insults or any physical insults. So if you can get there, you can go to step two and you can think in working with adversaries, all right, what do we all want here? Let's just kind of put it all out. You know, um, what upsets me? What upsets you? What would really make me happy? Is it having the corner office? Is it, I just need recognition. I need to be told I'm doing my job and I'm doing it well. You know, is it psychological is, or I really need a bigger paycheck? You know, I'm just being underpaid here. That's just frankly the case. And we know it, here's the documents, you know, what is it? And sometimes you don't know what it is you really want, what it is. And you have to imagine, okay, if I had this, would I feel satisfied? If I had that, would I feel satisfied? And you can ask that to the other side. Well, if you got this in exchange for that, would that make you feel better? That's kind of shopping around. It's like the, can I tell you about the orange story that we, it's famous in conflict resolution. And those of us in the field call it the orange story. It was invented actually way back in the 1940s by someone in Boston. Okay, there's one orange in the kitchen where two teenage girls are arguing over who shall get it. So the mother comes in and says, okay, enough screaming about this orange. I'll just split it down the middle. You can each have half. Compromise solution, right? Even Stephen, equal for each. Well then, what mother noticed is that one girl squeezed the juice because she was going to make orange juice. The other girl didn't care about the innards of the juice, she wanted the peel, and she then shredded the peel because she was making a cake. Bad solution, they each got 50% of what they wanted. Whereas if beforehand mother had said, why do you need the orange? I need it for the juice, okay, and why do you need it? I need it for the rind, for my cake. Each one could have had 100% of what they actually wanted. But because they weren't asked what's the purpose and they didn't express it, they argued. So it's a very famous story, you know, that we speak about. If you think about, you know, is it the rind or the juice that you're really, you're really after, but you have to think about it in personal terms, what it is I really need. Okay, that's the second step in this getting to yes approach is thinking about what are my interests? So step one, never take it personally. Step two, what are my interests? 
And then step three, once you know you're not taking it personally, your head is relaxed, step three is let's think of options for mutual gain. I often tell people you can only present solutions that offer gains to all sides. The room goes silent because people are you, when they think of the term brainstorming, they think, well, my idea would be this and this and, and the other side just should go along with it. No, that is not really productive. It's harder to think, imagine solutions where everyone has a gain. And once you shift the mindset, you know, then you get a few ideas. You don't get a lot, but you get a few ideas that then people can work with. But that never can be the end point because you can get bizarre, you know, bizarre thoughts. Um, so the last step is promoting a solution which is just fair and wise. In other words, if a judge looked at it, they'd say, yeah, that's a smart choice rather than, yeah, it, it, it's what you all want, but it's just idiotic and it really is not practical and it won't work. So wise, fair, and just the last step. So those are the four steps in the getting to yes approach. That is so helpful. And you have given us so many actionable ideas in terms of how we manage conflict in our own lives and in our organizations. Thank you. Karen, I warned you, we do an off-the-map question. And I also shared with you that I was not sure what it was going to be, and I was waiting for the muse to hit. And the muse has hit. So behind you, there is a poster. And listeners, I need to describe the poster. It has four human-like figures running, if you're facing the poster, to the left side of the poster. It says in English, run for freedom. I think um, Arabic is above, and it's too fine of a print, so I can't see what language might be below Run for Freedom. But you've got to tell me the story behind this poster. I'd also love for you to take a picture of it so we can put it on in the show notes, but you've got to tell me the story behind the poster. <laughs> okay. All right. This is from Kuwait. It's a thank you poster after the Gulf War in 1991, where the United States liberated Kuwait from Iraqi occupation. I was invited as a small delegation in 1992 or 1993. We were a group of about 12 people to go to Kuwait, um, funded by the Kuwaiti government. And it was through an association in the United States. I think it was called the American Arab Council or something. I really can't recall right now. But I was one of the people who was included on this journey. And it is the only country in the world where I've ever seen pro-American graffiti on the cement walls outside the U.S. Embassy. <laughs> it's just, it was just incredible. But of course, the Kuwaitis, who before that war had been much more um, centrist in their approach to the U.S., but they were just so thankful after the occupation. And just to hear their stories of how they lived during that time. and you know, what happened afterwards was just in, incredibly, uh, it was ju just amazing to hear that. And when the, how the Iraqis just gutted, you know, Kuwait City, they took all the books out of the university, for example, and they had trucks and the trucks would say, these are going to Baghdad, these are going to Basra, just like they were like moving company. 
in the computer rooms, they not only took the computers, they took all the all the wiring, they took the blinds off the windows, they took the cement tiles, I mean, just simply everything. And it was not all corrected by, by the time we got there. Then in the, the hotels, and there's beautiful, you know, five-star hotels in Kuwait, sometimes furniture was still being delivered. But the top floors, I was at a banquet there one night, top floor with a big swimming pool and just elaborate gardens all around. It turns out that the Rockies hadn't hit that eighth eighth floor because their elevators had uh, dysfunctioned at about the fourth floor. So they'd only taken everything up to the fourth floor. Thank goodness. That's awesome. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. And I want to make sure that we share with our listeners ways that they can learn more about your work. And so listeners, first, check out beyondintractability.org. It is a great resource around conflict resolution. I actually spent some time on their blog today. They've got some really awesome blog posts. And let me just read you a couple titles. One title of a blog post. Even if you think you know what the other side thinks, you likely don't. And they don't know you either. I love that. Or how about this one? Respect is free to give, yet its payback is huge, breaking down stereotypes and often earning respect in return. So it is so worth going to beyondintractability.org and checking out all of the resources there. Now, Karen is also involved with the program on negotiation at Harvard, and you should check out pon.harvard.edu for even more information. Not surprisingly, she's got a number of publications out. So there are three that I want you to check out on Amazon. One is Plans for Peace, Negotiation in the Arab-Israeli Conflict. Another is Terminate Terrorism, Framing, Gaming, and Negotiating Conflicts. Love that subtitle, by the way. Framing, Gaming, and Negotiating Conflicts. And then the final is America Responds to Terrorism, conflict resolution strategies of Clinton, Bush, and Obama. So if you're if you're a political junkie, you might really enjoy that last one. And then finally, she has offered to send us a PowerPoint slide deck on resolving conflict, and we're going to be posting that at our show notes as well. Hey, Karen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Listeners, if you found this conversation helpful, if it's going to help you figure out a way to deal with a difficult situation or a difficult relationship or personality that you have in your life, there are a couple more episodes that you might really enjoy. The first is episode 89, Conflict Can Be Good for Your Organization with Nate Regier. And the second is episode 150, Frenemies, Solving Problems with Unlikely Partners with Leah Garces. So make sure you check out both of those. And also, as long as you're online and checking out websites, don't forget to register for our strategic planning webinar. You will learn everything that you need to know about it, but maybe you've been afraid to ask. That, listeners, is our show for the week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And it's kind of ironic, after a great episode on conflict resolution, I still have to give you the disclaimer that the lawyers make me give you. So here it goes. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. 
This podcast and this episode is for informational purposes only and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. If that's what you need, please find a licensed, qualified professional in your area and seek out the advice that you need.